In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. So writes Rick Warren in the opening sentences of his blockbuster book, The Purpose Driven Life. Well, this morning, I'm going to be preaching about Christian stewardship. And Warren's words about your life could also be applied to your money. Contrary to what our culture tells us about our success, our money, our wealth, our achievements, it's not about you and what is yours. Rather, it's about God and what is his. For he is the Lord, the master, the king, the ruler, the sovereign. And we are his people, his servants, his slaves, his subjects. And what we may like to think of as our stuff is actually his stuff. When we are obviously needy, it's much easier to depend on God. But health, wealth, and prosperity can very quickly rob us of our right dependence on God. One of the spiritual problems we face living in America is that most of us are so well off materially that we can easily forget just how blessed that we are. Of course, this is not a modern or uniquely American problem. It's a problem that wealthy people have always had. Indeed, that's precisely what we saw in our Old Testament reading this morning. Verse 11, take care that you do not forget the Lord your God. God's purpose for his people was that they should welcome his blessings and recognize his goodness. But they did the former without bothering with the latter. Instead of remembering, they forgot Widespread prosperity led to widespread ingratitude. God wanted them to do three things. Verse 10, enjoy his benefits. You shall eat your fill. Worship God. Bless the Lord. Give thanks for all the good land he's given you. Instead, they forgot God, disobeyed his commands, and became self-satisfied, self-sufficient, and proud. In that passage... We read this warning, take care that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes. When you've eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then do not exalt yourself, forgetting the Lord your God. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. Don't say that. But remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors, as he is doing today. And this is very countercultural for us. This is hard for us, I think, to hear and to receive. It's not really a very American way of thinking. For we're part of a 
wonderful nation that has been built on with a lot of hard work and by people who are resilient, people who've had nothing and, and produced something. And all of that is good, unless or until we think we did it by ourselves. It's not about us and what we've achieved. It's about God and what he's done for us. He is the owner, and we are his trustees. Some years ago, a Louisiana law firm was asked to undertake a title search for some property in New Orleans. They successfully traced the title all the way back to the Louisiana Purchase in, what date was that? Very good, 1803. Uh, but their clients weren't satisfied. Oh, you were here earlier. <laughs> no, it was, I was, okay, but I was, very good, very good. Uh, their clients, however, weren't satisfied with that, so the search continued. Finally, the law firm, in exasperation, sent the following letter to their clients. Gentlemen, please be advised that in the year 1803, the United States of America acquired the territory of Louisiana from the Republic of France by purchase. The Republic of France, in turn, acquired title from the Spanish crown by conquest. The Spanish crown, having obtained it by virtue of the discoveries of one Christopher Columbus, who had been authorised to undertake his voyage by Isabella, Queen of Spain, who obtained sanction for the journey from the Pope, the Vicar of Christ, who is the son and heir of Almighty God, who made Louisiana. <laughs> what we are accustomed to call our own is not ours. It's God's. What we do is hold on to it for a time. We use it and add to it and then pass it on. God is the owner. We are the trustees. What we have done, we have done because we've been the recipients of countless gifts. A life to live, a, a brain in which to think, a, a natural talent to use. We haven't earned those things. The raw materials of the earth with which to create a body with which to work and countless opportunities that many of us have had to grow and learn and mature and develop as people, these weren't earned. These are given. Now, of course, people differ significantly in what they do with what they've been given and what they make of all the gifts and opportunities. Some work hard. Others are lazy. But let us not fall into the temptation of thinking that we deserve by right all the material blessings and wealth so many of us enjoy. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And the psalmist understood this. Uh, we read together earlier, how shall I repay you for all the good things God has done for me? I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And call upon the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of all the people. St. Paul understood this too as he writes from his prison cell. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And here Paul's not referring to some specific calling or vocation. Rather he's talking about the way life really is in the kingdom of God. Live a life worthy of the calling of the gospel itself, a call to believe in Jesus, to recognize him as Lord and King, and to give him complete and undivided allegiance. That, by the way, is what a good steward does. 
Every moment, in every decision, with every word and action, the good steward is tending to that which God has entrusted to him or her. And we are called to be loyal and faithful servants to God in every area of our lives, which necessarily includes our money. And the challenge for us in Deuteronomy, in the Psalm, in Ephesians, and not least in the Gospel, is that we are accountable to God, and we will be held to account for what we do with what he has given to us. The bottom line is this. We are managers, not owners. In the story Jesus told, that the man who went on a journey and... Uh, who gave out all these talents, that man placed significant trust in those servants. And today, Jesus still places extraordinary trust in us. I want to pick up that story uh, that Jesus told in verse 20, where we're told that the master returns, as indeed we say of Jesus each week in the creed. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Well, in this story... The servant who had been given the five talents comes forward and says, Master, you handed, me over, uh, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Or I think we had well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of my master. And we see the exact same thing happens with the two-talent guy. But then along comes Mr. Alberiot in the ground, who seems to be blaming his own laziness and unfaithfulness on the master himself, which is not exactly a new strategy in the realm of sin, for that's precisely what Adam did in the Garden of Eden, you remember. The woman you gave me, he says to God, she did it, it's her fault. And in this parable, Mr. Alberit in the ground um, then whines about how harsh his master is, as if somehow he thinks that's going to help him. But, you know, I think it's easy with this parable, as with many of the parables, for us to be too quick to identify, uh, identify ourselves with the good guys and assume, well, obviously that's us. And now maybe we're modest, and so we'll identify with the two-talent guy. But there can be a false modesty that is really a cover for unfaithfulness. Indeed, maybe that was Mr. Alberius in the grounds problem. Perhaps he thought that one talent people don't really count for much in God's kingdom. I wonder, do you ever look around at all the two talented and five talented and ten talented people, and we've got plenty of those in this congregation, and think, well, gosh, you know, they can do the work of God's kingdom. God doesn't really need little me, and he doesn't need my gifts or my money. What's that going to help? But therein lies a massive misunderstanding of what Christian stewardship is all about. If it were just about the amount of money, then all the poor people would be exempt from giving. But to exclude those with less from participating in the work of God's kingdom is not remotely what Jesus is teaching. On the contrary, because our giving 
is such an intensely spiritual and practical matter and which done rightly puts people in closer touch with God and his blessings, no one should be prevented from participating in this, whether you're young or old, rich or poor, one-talented, five-talented, two-talented, whatever. But what do I mean in all this? What does faithfulness in our giving look like for us today? Okay, so we are trustees. We've got that. Yes, what we have comes from God. Okay. But we still have to buy groceries and pay for homes or cars or education or health and all the other stuff that we have to spend money on. And many people, some here perhaps, are struggling to pay their bills. So where does that leave us? Well, I want to answer that in two ways. First, I want to say something about what motivates us to give. And second, I want to talk about how much God calls us to give. So first, our motives for giving. The psalmist addressed that this morning, Psalm 116, verse 10. How shall I repay the Lord for all the good things he's done for me? And a few verses later in verse 15, he answers, I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And St. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said, Each of you must give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So God wants us to give with thankfulness and with cheerfulness, two great motivators for giving. Except that's not how many folks actually give. And of course there are many other motives for giving. There was a cartoon once in a church magazine that showed an usher holding an offering plate under the nose of someone who had a bit of a scowl on his face. And the caption underneath said this, The Lord loves a cheerful giver, but he also accepteth from a grouch. (laughs) Which is kind of funny, but not true. The Lord isn't interested in grouch giving, as if somehow he needs the money to pay, pay his bills and he doesn't care how he gets it. No, God does care. He cares about you. He cares about your heart. There are other reasons why people give. Uh, Some people give out of pride. Maybe you remember that time Jesus was with his disciples. They were sitting outside the temple. They were watching as people came in, and there were these big containers where people would make their offerings. And some people made quite a fuss about it, dropping in lots of money so everyone could see. And then in marked contrast, a, a widow comes along who put in two small copper coins. And Jesus says, that one, that one, she's given more than the rest, How so? Because she gave all that she had. Another way that some people are motivated to give is through guilt. But I have to say that the solution to guilt over our use of money is not grouch giving. It's repentance and forgiveness and amendment of life. Then out of that, a person may give joyfully and generously with the gratitude that God desires. You know, don't, don't confuse feeling bad about something and genuine repentance. They're not the same thing. You know, if you're driving uh, down the highway and you're on the wrong side of the road, uh, feeling bad about that or being sorry about that is not sufficient. Uh, repentance is required. And repentance actually means to turn around. And that's what you'd need to do on the highway and, and go in the correct direction. Which, by the way, is... Um, on the other side of the road. But anyway, we won't go there. 
for many Christians, a turnaround is needed in their thinking and acting in regards to their giving. You know, if up until now you've been giving in a non-biblical way, haphazardly or reluctantly or begrudgingly, not as the first portion of your income, not as a tithe, then repentance will mean taking your heart and mind and bank account in a different direction. Is God calling you to move in a different direction? There are other folks who think that they should give because the church is a good cause or, or because the budget's strained. But, you know, notwithstanding the real challenges that we've laid out to the congregation over the past couple of months in our dessert night presentations, at the end of the day, I can't stand here and make an appeal to you to give in order to fund the church budget. This is not a fundraising pitch. Why not? Because if I did that, I would run the risk of both seriously shortchanging God and seriously misleading you, because that's not how the Bible teaches us to do this. We give first and foremost not to meet a church budget, but because our Lord calls us to give. We give in response to the one who gave everything for us. We give to God, yes, much of it through the local church, but we give to God in gratitude and joy for what he's done for us. Okay, so we've looked at the big picture. It's not all about you. It's all about God. We've looked at our role in God's kingdom. We're trustees, managers, stewards, not the owners. We've considered what should motivate us to give, not pride or guilt or mere duty, but joy, thankfulness, and generosity. So what about the bottom line? How much? How much should we give? You've gone very quiet. Yes, okay. Um, the, bi the biblical norm, the, the biblical standard that we find throughout the Bible is the tithe, 10% of all our income. And, you know, I spell that out today because I think for some who use church speak, the word tithe has become a kind of generic verb for give. So whatever someone you know, gives to the church, well, that's my tithe. And, but tithe doesn't mean gift. Tithe means tenth. It means 10%. Uh, there were a couple of farmers discussing what the tithe really meant uh, one day, and one of them said to the other one, so if you had a 1,000 sheep, would you be willing to give 100 of them to the Lord? Well, uh... Yes, yes, I suppose I would, said the other one. Okay, and if you had a hundred cows, uh, would you be willing to give ten of them to the Lord? Well, yes, yes, that's right, I'd do that, I'd do that. Okay, so suppose you had ten pigs, would you give one of them to the Lord? Wait a minute, wait a minute, he says to his friend, that's not fair. Well, how so, said his friend. Well, you know that I've got ten pigs. This is where we have to get real. Our financial stewardship is not an exercise in what I'd do if I won the lottery or if I earned a million dollars, if I had a thousand sheep or a hundred cows. It's about the reality of living out our lives with what we have, taking seriously the biblical mandate to give the first 10% of all our income back to God. And, you know, sometimes 
people say to me, but isn't that just an Old Testament principle? It doesn't apply today, does it? Well, you know, it is spelt out very explicitly in the Old Testament in a number of places, but it's also assumed in the New Testament. Indeed, Jesus says on one occasion to the Pharisees, when you tithe, and then he goes on to do some other teaching, but it's assumed. But I'll grant you, it's not the only standard of giving we find in the New Testament. Do you remember Zacchaeus, um, the guy who climbed up the tree and had been ripping everybody off? Uh, he promised to give half. And, and Jesus didn't say, oh, no, that's too much. He said, great. And, and then there was uh, the rich young ruler. Jesus asked him to give it all. And the poor widow who did give all she had. You know, I think when we try and renegotiate the tithe down from 10%, we're just not on the right track. After all, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus specifically says, do not think that I came to abolish uh, the law. I came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And then, you remember, he gave some examples of what filling the Old Testament law might look like. He said, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it said you should not commit murder. But I say to you, if you're angry against your brother or sister, you're liable to judgment. Do you really think that had he been asked about tithing, he would have said, you have heard it said that you shall tithe the first of all your income to the Lord. But I say to you, times are hard. The economy's tanking. Taxes are high. Just give what you can spare. I don't think so. So, what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, uh, each of you, or most of you, I hope, will have received a stewardship letter from me this week uh, in the mail. And if you haven't, it's either on its way or you can pick one up at the back. And I'm asking that people respond as the Lord leads them to give in accordance with his will and his calling. I'm asking you to lay out your finances before the Lord. He sees them anyway, of course, but then to pray. And as you do so, please take seriously this call to remember all that God has done for you and to remember this biblical standard of the tithe. So whether your income is 25,000 or 250,000, will you trust God? Will you tithe? On the back of the pledge card, you'll find a table that shows what proportionate giving looks like, and you can you know, look for your annual income, and, and you know, if you were 40,000, then you can look along the table, and you can see what it looks like to give 2% or 5% or 10% or 12%. Where are you with this? Some here today, I guess, are probably right on track, and you give joyfully and generously and proportionately out of your income. Good. And I, I would imagine it, it brings you great joy. Others may be struggling with this. And for some, it may never have occurred to you to give like this. But we put this before you, not to guilt you into giving more, but rather as a way of inviting you to respond as God calls you. Will you answer that call? Will you give and tithe with thankfulness and gratitude? Will you be a good steward of all that God has entrusted to you. When our Lord comes again, each one of us will have to give an account of our lives. Will we be found faithful? Not one of us deserves God's love and grace and mercy. Not one of us can do anything to earn God's love. 
But can you imagine the joy on that day? If like the two-talent guy or the five-talent guy, Jesus says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And to whom does Jesus say that? To the ones who are faithful, to the ones who are trustworthy. And our faithfulness is demonstrated by the kind of trustees we are of all that we may like to think of as being ours, but which is really God's. Are you being a faithful steward? And, you know, if you're not sure, um, then there's a very simple exercise I commend to you. Take a look at your checkbook, your credit card statement, your family finances, however you do it. And it'll be very easy to determine from those things your level of faithfulness. It really will. And of course, your checkbook, your credit card statements, your family budget will demonstrate not merely whether you tithe, but how much of that which you don't give to God directly you are using wisely. Good stewards are charged with managing the whole lot. In many ways, the top 10% is the easy bit. Practicing the spiritual discipline of giving is not unlike other spiritual disciplines. You know, if your prayer life is moribund, start praying. If your relationships are ho-hum, start loving. And if your giving back to God from all he's entrusted to you is not on track, then start giving towards getting it on track. I urge you then, brothers and sisters, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Amen.